A reading from Revelation to John. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Good morning. Would you uh, pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. Help us to be present in this moment. And so may the words and meditation and conversations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and redeemer, amen. We have now been in the book of Revelation for a month. One time I said revelations to a real theology nerd. I was 18 and just learning the Bible and mentioned the book of Revelations 
and he traumatically corrected me. It's Revelation. And that's when I learned, or first started to understand what it meant to love your enemies. <laughs> if you ever say that in front of me, you are in good company. Uh, I may still correct you because I am now one of those theology nerds. So we've been in this book of Revelation for the last month. And this is the part where St. John might say, buckle up, the ride is about to get wild. We've got horsemen, we've got trumpets and plagues, dragons, the beast, etc. And last week, sorry, let me just sort of orient us. Last week, remember, John has just revealed to us the scroll, the one who is able to open the scroll. The scroll, the symbol of history, of God's activity in history. The coming of his kingdom on earth that is in heaven. What we pray for every week in the Lord's Prayer. The lamb is the one who is able to open the scroll. The one who is able to bring about God's kingdom of truth, beauty, justice, and goodness. And so we turn the page and maybe expect to see those things, but we don't, at least not yet. This is where the horsemen come in. Now, we didn't read chapter 6 this morning, um, but if you don't mind, I'll give sort of like the 30-second trailer version because it sets up the text that Mike read for us. So, 30 seconds, here we go. Four horsemen appear before John, each in turn, each a different color, representing the havoc that they bring. A white horse symbolizing conquest, a red one symbolizing violence, a black one, economic injustice, famine, a pale green horse finally rides by, representing sickness and death. And after the horsemen disappear, a vision of martyrs appear. And then an earthquake. Stars are falling. Mountains are moving. Islands are disappearing. It's this picture of a world gone awry. And it dovetails nicely with what Andy Dillard once said was the, the chief theological question of our time. What in the Sam Hill is going on here anyway? Now, as we've said so far in our study of Revelation, John isn't so much giving this prophetic vision that's a prediction to the T of the future. It's broad strokes, but it's a prophetic vision that makes sense of reality right now, the forces that are at work in our world. And it's this dramatic, poetic work that's for the church as it takes its next steps and hope. And the purpose of chapter 6, this world gone awry, is to awaken us to a sense of uneasiness by vividly identifying these threats. The four horsemen are designed to shatter any illusion that we can find in security in our nation's borders or that of an empire or in a thriving economy or in our very own health. 
And so the chapter ends with St. John's chief theological question of all time. Who can stand? The cries from the people, who can stand? Who can stand in the midst of the chaos and the evil all around? This allusion to the frailties of our bodies and the limitations that we care, carry. Who can stand the admission of our own guilt caught up in the conquest, the violence, the economic injustice? We are not just victims, but perpetrators. Who can stand? It's a personal question. And it's a reminder that any discussion about evil, it's always personal. It's not theoretical. It always bears upon our deepest longings for healing, for wholeness, for righteousness to prevail. Who can stand? That's what St. John answers for us in our passage this morning. So let's look at it under these three headings. The great multitude, the great ordeal, and the God at the center of it all. The great multitude, the great ordeal, and the God at the center of it all. So first, look with me, if you will, at these first four verses, starting in chapter, or excuse me, verse 9. John turns to see a multitude that no one could count. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. Have you ever been in a crowd? One so large that you look forward and all you see are heads. Or you look back and all you see are faces. Philly has hosted a couple of these events in the recent years. Whether it was the Super Bowl parade from this past February. Or whether it was in 2015 when Philly hosted the Pope. Hundreds of thousands of people lining the parkway. It's a crowd so large, part of it's unsettling, right? I attended both of these said events, and they can be anxiety-producing. So many people around. You're not sure if a riot will break out. Or worse, you have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> this is the multitude that John sees, a multitude that no one can count. Now, what draws people to moments like this? Sure, maybe it's the energy, the excitement, that feeling. It's definitely not to socialize. That's not why you're going there. You are there because something bigger than you is happening. Whether that's the Super Bowl or the inauguration of the first African-American president in our nation's history, you are there because some event, historical event, has happened. Something has happened that affects the many and not the few. That's why you're in this crowd. This great multitude from every nation is standing before the Lamb with palm branches in their hands. It's this symbol of military victory. Now, one of the main themes that runs throughout Revelation, we've seen bits and pieces of it so far, but we're only just beginning, is this theme of battle of conquering, alluding to this messianic victory that was promised to Israel. And as we have already seen, what John is doing, though, is reinterpreting it around the story of Jesus. The Messiah, Jesus, does not gain victory 
by military conquest. Now think back to last week. What do we see? The Lion of Judah promised Israel to defeat God's enemies is the Lamb who was slain for his enemies. And what we see here, those who share in this victory and his rule are not nation, national Israel, but the international people of God from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. But it is still a victory over evil. And not just in the spiritual realm, but also in the political realm against the worldly powers in order to establish God's kingdom. Who can stand? The multitude from every nation. You were there because of the history-altering event of the death of the Lamb. Evil has fallen. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. This scene of singing and praising, it interrupts chapter 6 and the onslaught of evil. Worship, it interrupts. And we gather each week to sing songs, to pray prayers, to give praise to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to remember the reality of God's presence and his victory over evil. That as Stacy prayed earlier, there is more than we see, more than we hear. This is what we do every Sunday. It's a protest in hope that evil does not get the final word, but God does. We say that often here. That sort of has become like a turn of phrase, but that is so important for us to hear. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed John. Now, have you ever been in a group setting and some topic comes up? Or maybe you bring up the topic yourself, but you steer it towards what you know. Because you're proud of what you know. And you want others to know that you know. You ever do that? That's what the elder does here in verses 13 and 14. This is what he does to John. He asks John, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? And John calls him on it. Sir, you are the one that knows. The elder has been caught, but it's okay. He's excited about what he knows. He knows about the great ordeal. Okay, what is the great ordeal? Let me start um, by talking about vows. Vows among many things, lets you know what you're getting into, right? I was at a wedding yesterday, attending a wedding for two of our members actually here, Ryan and Vien, and they took vows to one another for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. In other words, this is what you're getting into. Circumstances will not always make love easy. Your love will be tested. Our baptismal vows, they get a little bit more to the point here. If you come forward for baptism or joining a city church, uh, this sign of being joined to Christ and to his church and his mission in the world, these are the first vows you take. Do you renounce sin and the power of evil in your life and in the world? 
I renounce them. Who is your Lord and Savior? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. These vows have allegiance language. And it's essentially saying that you are caught up in a battle. That evil and its existence in this world and in your life is not the way that it was supposed to be. That the life of Jesus took this head on by way of the cross. And you are caught up into this pattern of conquering by the way of the cross. This is what you're getting into. The great ordeal. The temptation for the church in any age, at any time, to go about conquering in any other way than the pattern of the cross. The temptation to believe that the blood of the Lamb is not enough. Let me make that a little more concrete by bringing some help from a spiritual mentor of mine, Henry Nouwen. He says this, and I think it's super helpful. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that the power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. The temptation to power comes up in our circumstances, our relationships, our life with God. We don't know how to overcome. And so we grasp for control. We make demands of God and others so that our life can become more manageable or more doable. The great ordeal is the context for the testing of your love. So how does our love grow rather than just wilt into power? How does your life become more open to others and less about your own protection? We wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. And like everything else that we've read and seen in the book of Revelation, it's a packed phrase. It comes with allusions from promises of old that God gave to Israel. And maybe if you were a first century reader, you'd be coming to mind the words from Isaiah, talking about God's redeemed people, people of the Messiah. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Or maybe what comes to mind is this scene in Zechariah where there's, the prophet is prophesying about the leader of Israel and his battle against the devil and an angel that's involved, and he gets new clothes. The redeemed people of God, that they would be forgiven of their sins. That is true, but there's more to what John is saying here. Because later in Revelation, Jesus is actually pictured as the one who also has these robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus himself is wearing this. These robes are not just a picture of the cleansing of God's people, but the call of God's people to go into the world as he does. It's a picture of humility. It's this picture of a downward move towards death, even our own deaths. And those affected by evil the most that it moves us towards. 
our love is grown as we move towards others in this way. Actually putting to death our needs for the sake of others. The ones standing in Revelation are the ones who have fallen with Jesus, if we could say it that way. The calling to the church in John's day continues to be the calling to the church in our day to suffer with Christ while we bear witness to a different reality, the coming of his kingdom. And we're going to unpack more of that in the coming weeks as we get into the dragons and the beasts. But I want to conclude where this text concludes. And it concludes with the God at the center of it all. Think for a moment about evil in the context of your own life. When we experience evil, whether that be something that has been done to us or a pattern of destruction that we ourselves are part of, that persists in our life, when we experience evil, we experience it in total. It colors everything. It becomes the center of our worlds, or so it seems. The chaos of chapter six, the horsemen, that seems to be all there is. And this heavenly image that John gives us, where we are taken into the throne room of God, it's given to us not so much that we would escape to some other reality, but to be confronted with the fact that though evil persists, though the earth shakes, it's not the center of the world to come. It will be pushed out. This vision that is revealed at the end here John concludes with this benediction. It's a benediction, a blessing over those who hear it, that the center of the world to come is God himself. And the God who is revealed here is intimately concerned with the very evils that we face, that feel like the center of our world. The God at the center is the one who shelters. He shelters those who are most affected the poor, the hungry, the homeless, the thirsty, those scorched by the intensity of life. The God at the center is the one who will guide and who guides you now. The lamb becomes the shepherd, the lamb who experienced the worst of this world, who experienced death itself. This benediction is a preview of coming attractions in Revelation. The end of Revelation, where we are not taken up, but God's presence in full comes down. The center of this city, so that we might be raised up to stand in his presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, We do struggle to believe, believe what you have not only told us, but showed us, that you have not left this world, that you have entered it yourself, taken on the very worst of it, and are very present to our lives. So would you help us to believe that? Would you help us to know it deep within us, 
as we continue in our worship, as we pray together, as we confess our faith, as we come to your table. We ask this in your name. Amen. The offering is a time when we reflect on what God is teaching us.